Fika with Anika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. So I'd like to introduce my next guest, uh, Denise Quires, your ANSA resident. And um, I've known you for several years. Uh, we know each other through MCOR activities, Earth Day and other fairs. And uh, I know that you uh, raise livestock and you use the, uh, the, the milk to make goat milk and you use the fiber to do other things. And uh, so you got your own little uh, homestead. I'm sure it's probably not so little anymore. I see that uh, in, in the uh, in the springtime, you're very busy with the, all the uh, kidding uh, and the uh, the lambs and the, the goats. Kidding, birthing right. pigs, and yeah. um, so let's bunnies. just start there with you know what is what is your livestock? Well, I have I raise Shetland sheep. I raise Nigerian dwarf goats for their milk. I raise the Shetland sheep for their fiber and for show. I have a registered show herd that I take around mostly in the summer. I'm busy. The first fair is coming up, um, Del Mar. That's pretty much my favorite one. I have Angora goats for fiber and I have a show herd. I raise show rabbits. I raise um, French Angoras, Jersey Woolies, um, Californians and silver fox and the silver fox the Californian they're dual purpose rabbits they're for meat or for show um, the woolies are little they're only four pounds so they're pretty much fan just fancy and the French angoras for their fiber and for show and so I know that you're also involved with 4-H and uh, other youth activities as well and um, so well, tell me a little bit then about uh, prepar preparation for going to the fair. I have been raising sheep for about 50 years now, and that's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> Since I was a kid in 4-H and then in FFA, um, I've had a lot of different breeds of sheep. Um, they're all prepared a little bit differently depending on whether the focus of that breed is for meat or for fiber. Um, the meat breeds, if you've ever been to the fair and you see them, they're pretty much slick shorn. Um, those are the meat breeds so that you can see what their carcass characteristics are like underneath all that wool. The wool is not very important on those breeds. It doesn't um, doesn't grow very long. It, does, it's, it can be used, it's just not that usable. When you go to the fair, you'll see the um, wool breeds, and those are shown in longer fleece for a reason. The judge needs to be able to evaluate the wool. Um, Shetlands being a wool breed, they, and one of the smallest breeds of sheep, they look pretty much like little puffballs running around out there. What I like about them is there are so many different colors. Um, 
If you go on the NASSA website, which is the North American Shetland Association, you can see probably 20 different colors and then an interesting array of markings, and they all have names, which are kind of unusual, but... Um, I've never heard of the Shetland sheep. Are there other uh, breeders in the area? Oh, yeah. I'm. They, there used to be a breeder that um, she's out of that breed now down in Ramona, Santa Isabel area. I have friends in the Fresno area. There's a couple of breeders over towards Acton, and then all over the country. Um, they're one of the rare breeds. They're not the you know the rarest breed around there. They're what's called a semi-primitive breed. They're what, that's another thing that attracted me to them, other than they're small and they don't eat a lot, is they're hardy and they do good up in this climate. Um, they lay them out in the snow all the time, have their babies out in the snow and they're fine. Come out in the morning, there's mom and two babies standing up and everybody looks at you like, oh, look what we did last night. <laughs> we didn't care it was snowing. So, so you um, don't have to be the sheep midwife. You don't, you know, you do have to look after them, but um, they're pretty um, self-sufficient sheep. And they're from Scotland. They're from the Shetland Islands, okay. which is not a, a very welcoming climate. They're pretty... They're pretty tough cookies. They're very similar to the Icelandic breed, and some people are familiar with those. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. There are subtle differences in the fleece. And I'm sure some, something in the accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the sheep wow. fascinate me. They're so, I've just, like I said, raised them since I was a kid, and um, I've had other animals. I've raised beef, and I've raised meat goats, and... All kinds of things, but I keep coming back to my sheep. And now my Angora goats, they're, they're fun to raise too. And they're for the, uh, for the fiber. They're for the fiber. Um, the fiber from Angora goats, you've probably heard of it. It's called mohair. Oh. And um, it confuses people. So Angora is not... Angora fiber comes from a rabbit. Okay. From an Angora rabbit, an Angora goat raises mo has mohair and then there's other breeds of goats um there's a cashmere goat and that's where cashmere comes from and sometimes people cross angoras and cashmeres and then they produce a fiber called cashgora which is not very common and then this year too we've added the alpacas that's another thing i have this year that's new to me as for as a fiber animal is i have six alpacas it's been a learning experience with those well, i'm sure the alpacas get along with everybody else pretty well <clears throat> they will definitely never be show animals they are just um there but they're i could sit out on my deck and watch animals all day long and never get bored they're always doing something, and you watch them, and you go, okay, I know why you're doing that. It, it so much goes back to nature and how they're supposed to act to preserve themselves. You know, why do sheep run when you, well, what does a sheep have to defend itself, really? It doesn't have teeth. It doesn't have claws. It has decent eyesight and it can run and so that's what a sheep is going to do is run away so okay so going back to preparation for mm -hmm. the fair 
this year, what are you planning on bringing to the fair, and what is the preparation? I'm, I'm assuming it's like you just don't do it the day before. You just brush them off and take them off. It, it, this is it, it actually starts when they're born. You start scoping out your um, show prospects. You're going to look at the standard for the breed and see what animals you have best that best meet the standard for the breed. Every breed has a standard. Every breed that you exhibit, from cattle to rabbits to dogs to... So you start, you know, scoping out your potential winners, and then you start looking at the fleeces. You want to try to keep them clean, which, when it's windy and you're throwing out alfalfa, is sometimes a bit of a challenge. <laughs> um, you keep their feet and their hooves trimmed. You just watch them. You... Maybe you put them on a little bit higher plane of nutrition than you would just your grade herd. And um, I had mine out the other day before the weather turned, um, and I was just brushing them, blowing them, looking for breaks in the fleece, looking for anything that might I could do better. I, this one needs to be fattened up a little more. This one's too chubby and needs to go on a diet. Um, just little things. You have to be observant. You have to know what's going on. You can't just decide, I'm taking that one, that one. And most of the fairs, um, it's a good month. You have to submit your entry. So I think for the Del Mar Fair, the show is until the week of the, around the 9th. Um, the entries were due the 4th. 9th of um, June, the entries were due the 4th of May. Okay. And so with the entries, there's an entry fee? There is. It's, um, it varies from fair to fair. It's usually $10 per class with the potential to make 50 for a first place. So it's, we're not talking huge amounts of money, no. but we're talking about prestige. Yeah. Um, and you, you become recognized then as a distinguished breeder. Right. And, it, you know, if you have stock that wins, people will tend to want to buy your stock as opposed to maybe somebody else's. Not always. Sometimes somebody's got a color you want and you really don't know where you're going to get it other than some person in Kentucky, and you may consider making the trek out there just to get that color. Not very often, but <laughs> I borrowed a ram this year, and um, he had a color I wanted. I uh, Most of my sheep are moret, which is a brown color. And I, you know, I want some white in my flock. I want some black. I want something different than all this just brown, brown. So now I have other colors. I have one that looks like an Oreo cookie out there. Oh, how fun. Which is, yeah, very, very fun. It's so fun watching the babies come and wondering what color they're going to be. And they're good-natured? They're, they're they, easy to keep? They are good-natured. Um with any species, you have to keep an eye on the rams. You don't want the rams to get too familiar with you. If they lose too much of their fear of you, they'll back up and smack you. They think they're playing, but it hurts, and they're strong. Even though they're 150 pounds, they're, they can get you. <laughs> Versus one that's two, 300 pounds. They still pack a punch. We, uh, my nickname for one of them is Mr. Knee Basher. So, so you know but generally you know if you um if they have respect for you and you leave them alone you don't tease them and pet them and fuss over them too much they 
they keep a respectable distance and that's what you want that's what you want the babies um i handle them a lot i'll go out there and sit out in the pen with a chair and just sit there and they'll get used to me and they get curious and they walk up and they know i'm not gonna grab them or hurt them and then they're trained to um, walk on halter oh which is usually okay. a good thing we don't have to show them on a halter a lot of us do um, usually the first show out like the june show will be for me the babies are just little maniacs and they want to run all around so it's nice to have something to hold on to them with as they get older they calm down but they're a little squirrely <laughs> in the beginning <laughs> You show your own animals, or do you I have do. a, a higher um, day? Oh. You know, what's fun about livestock showing, I guess, more so than some of the other um, species, horses and things, we all get in and help at the fair. If you've got four animals in the ring and only three people, one of if one of your competitors is not in that class, they'll step in and help you. They'll step in and hold. And you would do the same for them. Yeah, that's really what I like. There's a lot of camaraderie. I mean, we get together after the shows and go have something to eat. And we have a potluck at the show, usually on Friday night, just the sheep people's potluck, you know. So. Right. And now this is like goes on for weeks on end. So are you gone? Well, the fairs break it up for species. Um, there'll be sheep week. There'll be Dairy Goat Week. There'll be Market Week when all the kids come in with their steers and lambs and pigs. Um, I'm usually down there for about a week, which is nice. Nice to get away. It's it nice to get away. Um, we did that with the Orange County Fair last year, and it was rather terrifying because all the fires and electricity outages were going on, and I was... Oh. Um, I was really torn. I almost said, you know what, I'm going home. But uh, friends were like, okay, well, if you need to go home, we'll feed your sheep. We'll make sure they get in the ring, which is, you know, I was staying out there with my daughter. And uh, I, I played it one day at a time, and I ended up staying. But people are so nice. They'll step in and do that, whatever you need to do, you know. So that's that's what's drawn me to livestock showing my whole life everybody it's it's very we help each other we help each other a lot we do what needs to be done the different types of rabbits that you have mm -hmm. is that it was rabbits that got you started by remember correct and seeing mm -hmm. on facebook uh that you started showing rabbits i think at the fairs well no actually it was the sheep when I was 12, and um, the rabbits came later. Um, I learned to spin and weave, and I went to a little uh, open house. Um, what I, I'm at a loss for the word here. Just like a little fiber fun day, and somebody had a rabbit in the raffle. It was a black angora rabbit, and I had my daughter with me, and she was five. And she said, look at that. I want that. And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we're up for that. Well, I gave her some tickets, and sure enough, we came home with a rabbit. <laughs> and that kind of started that, that off. First of all, um, we thought it was a male. <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, okay. So she started out as Roger and ended up being Roger Ann. 
Oh, lovely. <laughs> and that was in the early 90s, and um, the big ARBA convention, the national show, was in Pomona that year, and so we decided to go get her a boyfriend once we figured out what gender she was. And um, that's the big national show, which I'll be going to in Reno um, in October. There's probably 15,000 rabbits there from all over the country. It's our, it's our Westminster Kennel Club of rabbit shows. It's the big one. So, so we had gone to Pomona and picked up this male and can't for the life of me think of his name, but he was black. My, my daughter named them these crazy names. And, um, yeah, we had babies and that was that. They were English Angoras, um, which I don't raise anymore. Nobody really told us how high maintenance that particular breed was. Uh, there was a reason it was in the raffle. It was a nice <laughs> rabbit. It was just, yeah, I couldn't see somebody trying to keep up with 10 of them, especially if you're a novice. So, And then my daughter went on from that into 4-H, and she raised Netherland dwarfs, the little small three-pound rabbits, and we raised those for quite some time. And she had some national winners and some really nice ones. But since I worked with fiber, I always kept a small herd of angoras. The angoras are then a long-haired rabbit? Yes, the angoras. There are four breeds of angoras. There's the giant angora, which is also called the German or commercial. It's a great big one. And it comes in white only at this time, and it probably gives you the most fiber. I've had them. I found them difficult to breed. I don't have those anymore. Um, the English Angora, which is smaller, up to about seven and a half pounds, what we started with. A little bit more high maintenance. Um, they have a lot of wool on the face. And if you're not brushing them all the time, they're, they're a lot of work. They can be. Um, there's a Satin Angora, which is one of the rarer breeds. And it looks like the breed that I raised, which is the French which has the clean head, more like a classic rabbit, no wool on the head and oh. just wool on the body. And I've had French all this time you know, with a few satins here and there, but uh, the satins are pretty. They look like a smaller version of the French, only shiny, they have shiny, shiny wool and shiny guard hair. But I'll just stick with my French. And then I have Jersey Woolies, which are the little fancy rabbits. And then silver fox which are not a very common breed they are black with whitish gray flecks and their coat is interesting it's a regular rabbit coat but it stands it will stand up and then the californian is the classic white rabbit with dark ears dark nose dark tail dark feet they're pretty common around here they're a very popular meat rabbit okay but no i didn't get started as a kid i got started with my kid <laughs> It sounds like a fun hobby, but uh, some work involved. You were saying high maintenance on some of the rabbits. Mm -hmm. You have to brush them. Brush them. Brush them um, a lot of us, we use high-powered blowers. It grooms out the dead hair without ripping out the rest of the coat. So you just, it looks like a, looks like a vacuum, the old canister type vacuum cleaner. It, um, with a hose on the end and you just, blow and blow it blows about as strong as a leaf blower and it, we get them used to it when they're babies and we just blow out all the dead loose hair 
Okay, so that was answered my next question. So the rabbits become pretty docile and, and they're domesticated, obviously, so you can handle them. Rabbits are handled. This type of rabbit is handled a lot. Um, they're all different. They're all individuals like people. Some of them do like to be handled. Some of them, they'll take it for a while and then, no, put me away, please. Um, so, you know, people tell me sometimes, don't you feel bad for having them in cages and it's like no that's their home that's their domain that's their secure place and i come and feed them and water them and talk to them and pet them and groom them and i i think they realize they have it actually pretty good <laughs> having to be on the ground fending for themselves so. well the wild rabbits have dens in the ground little small tight spaces exactly so and when we take them to shows, we have little tight transport cages, which, you know, when I encounter people, they don't know. Why are they crammed in there? I said, well, they feel secure. If their space is too big, something can startle them, and they can run and actually break their back and hurt themselves. They startle easy. So they, they're they pretty happy in there. They can't live like that, obviously, but for a day or so, they're, they seem pretty content in there. So... Yeah, they all they all have their spaces. They they like their spaces. They're protective of their spaces. Um, when you breed rabbits, you never put the male into the female's cage. She'll most of the time attack him because that's her space and that's her home and that's where she's protective of. So you have to introduce the female to the male. Exactly, or else out in a common area that neither one owns, but, um, oh. yeah, there is, you do that, there's generally World War Three, and the doe will generally start the war. Sure, interest in the male goes only as far as get out of my house, you know, I'll come see you, but uh, you're not welcome here. Interesting. It's very interesting. It's, it's interesting, um, the kids, they'll, they'll have litters of babies and I'll get these calls. She doesn't take care of her babies. And I'll say, well, are the babies in the nest, are they fat? Well, yeah. I go, she's taking care of them. If you think of babies in the wild and rabbits in the wild, the mom doesn't hang out by her nest. She feeds them once, maybe twice a day, and then she leaves. And why do you suppose that is? It's because she leads the predators right to where the nest is if she hangs around there. So that's why a lot you'll find um, nests of rabbits sometimes when you're out doing work in the garden or landscaping. You'll think they're abandoned. They're not. Just the mom stays away. Generally, they'll feed in the evening or in the morning. You'll see them go in and feed if you catch them at all. They're pretty covert. Um, but And that's all. It comes back to watching. Nature does what works, you know. Nine times out of ten, there's a, a reason for that behavior, that activity in animals. So bottom line is if, if you come across a nest of baby rabbits, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Yeah. It's, you know, if your dog digs it up, that's probably another issue. But um, if, if they're just sitting there, they're fine. They are fine, and of course you'll never come across a nest of hares because hares are not like rabbits. Hares are born fully furred with their eyes open, and they hit the ground running. 
They're precocious. They are precocious. A guinea pig is the same way. A hare, it's a born, it's, I mean, it still hangs with its mother, but rabbits are de fully dependent on the mom for about four, maybe five weeks. Hares, nope. <laughs> Interesting. So that's how you know if you find a, a little tiny baby and it's just a miniature of the adult, that's more than likely a hare. Okay. My uh, my dogs have been bringing home little baby bunnies. Aww. Yeah, yeah. I guess they're easy to catch. They probably are, and dogs will dig. And you know, the babies are usually down in a hole in the nest, but the dogs can dig them right out. So, right. Poor babies. Yeah. Pika with Anika. Got an older car that's not working and is going to be too expensive to repair? KYT Coyotes can pick it up, get top dollar for it, and use those funds to support Anza Community Broadcasting. KYT, your community radio station. For more info, call 951-763-5698. Attention Mountain residents. Recognizing community needs in the age of technology, the Anza Electric Cooperative is partnering with the Riverside County Information and Technology Department and Anza Community Broadcasting KOIT to distribute refurbished desktop computers for free to income qualified residents. These desktop computers come loaded with Windows 10 and Home Office. If you're interested in seeing if you or your family member qualifies, the applications are available online at anzaelectric.org, at the Anza Electric Cooperative front office, at Lorraine's Pet Supply, and in the box outside of the KOYT station. Once you have filled out your application, it can be scanned and emailed to fundraising at koyt971.org. It can be mailed P.O. Box 391-229, Anza, California, 92539, or handed in at Lorraine's Pet Supply, the co-op office, or in the mail slot at the KOYT station. The Coyote. Listen to it. Welcome back to Fika with Anika. Tell me more about your other animals. Well, I have the Nigerian dwarf goats, and I started out about 10 years ago with three, and... I'm not exactly sure how many I have out there now, but I did have 22 babies this year. And most of them, thankfully, have gone on to be um, to new homes as pets. And a lot of them I get to see because a lot of them are here in the area on the hill. So, um, and I'm glad to go see them and see how they're doing. And if anyone's got a problem, see if I can help. Um, but it's, it's nice. I, I've seen at least 10 this year that used to be my babies that are all grown up, and it's fun to see them come along. Um, I keep this breed, like I said, they're small, like my sheep. I like the smaller animals now that I've gotten a little bit older. <laughs> they're easier to handle. Um, I'm getting about a gallon of milk a day, which is about 
what I can handle as far as cheese making and yogurt making and drinking and the few people that take it for their pets and things. Um, Tell me a little bit about making cheese with the goat milk. Um, my favorite cheese right now is mozzarella, and we did a little class on it last year in the community hall. Um, it takes about a half an hour. It's a pretty simple process. If you have a thermometer and some rennet and some citric acid, you too can make mozzarella. And um, it tastes good. It melts good. Um, it freezes well when I have a lot of it. Yeah, half an hour from milk to um, milk to cheese. There's a few other cheeses I make. Chev, which is the classic goat cheese. You heat that up and then you put something in it that will make it curdle. Some people use vinegar. You can use lemon juice. You can use citric acid, all kinds of stuff. And you have to sit it in a bag and let it drain for a while and um, or in a colander and that makes this spreadable more classic goat cheese um i done feta which is a little bit like mozzarella but you have to brine it i haven't really gotten into the hard cheeses yet like um goat's milk cheddar or anything like that okay. i don't have a way to really um, keep it and age it at a consistent temperature so maybe someday i'll get a cheese cave and get into doing that but um, I make something called Kajeta which is spelled C-A-J-A-T-A -A -A, which is a Mexican caramel with um, vanilla and um, cinnamon stick and it's delicious it's really good on ice cream you can take a half a gallon of milk and fit it in a pint jar once you get done. <laughs> oh, so it's a real, um, it's a reduction. It's a reduction. Yeah. It's um, the crock pot works on low, works well for that. And it involves about 24 hours and a lot of stirring so it doesn't scorch. And it, it, it's, it's a caramel and it's really, really good. Uh, I make yogurt probably twice a week. Uh, I use my um, dehydrator. Uh, some people make it differently. I have a, an old-fashioned Excalibur-style dehydrator, and I take the screens out, and I put a um, thermometer in there. And so I, you cook the milk when you make yogurt. You bring it up to 190, take it down to 90 degrees, stir in a spoonful of the last batch of yogurt, and I incubate it usually overnight. I can see what temperature it is. Um, when I look through the dehydrator window, keep it about 110. The next morning, it's yogurt. <laughs> I have an old style Excalibur that uh -huh. I haven't used for a while. I mean, I use it, uh, you know, for uh, where I grow parsley and things like that. And, and dehydrate right, in it. Right. But I hadn't thought of using it as a yogurt maker. What a great idea. If Does it have a, a thermostat in it? You can no, it just has yeah. a timer on it that goes for like X amount of time. Yeah, mine is, um, they haven't made this brand. It, it's probably 40 years old. It's called an Equiflow. And it, it's the box kind with the screens, but it has a little thermostat on the side. And um, mine doesn't have that. it doesn't have temperature. It has um, low, medium and high. So you have to kind of fiddle around with it. Watch, you know, I usually start it up before put the thermometer in there and put it at 110 and when it's consistently at 110 
in goes the yogurt when it's done. So uh, yeah, anything you can control the temperature on, it works pretty well for me. I've never okay. had it not set up. So I use a culture usually the first batch of the year. I will buy a culture from um, New England cheese making, just a regular sweet yogurt culture. And then subsequent batches are all like sourdough starter. They're from the previous. Okay previous batch and you just keep it going but um, when I get fruit and I can make jam I make a lot of it and I like to stir that into my plain yogurt and it's really good goat's milk yogurt is really really good you can make ice cream with it um, same as you'd use cream in an ice cream freezer or whatever method you would use to make um, ice cream now, some people say that the goat milk has a goaty flavor. Does that have to do with what they're eating? I think to a certain extent, if your goats eat weird things, and if your goat is kept around the male, the males smell. I mean, maybe one in ten males will not smell, and the rest of them, they stink. <laughs> and they just okay. do. We call it buck cologne. Oh. <laughs> it smells good to them, and it smells good to the females, but it does not smell good to us. So if you run your milkers with your bucks, sometimes you're going to get an off aroma into your milk. Um, I think this is my personal opinion. I do not pasteurize my milk. I don't like the taste of milk that's been cooked. And when you pasteurize, you bring up to 190 and, and then you cool, cool back down. And I've noticed a significant flavor in the milk and I don't like it. Um, when you buy milk, goat's milk from the store, it's been pasteurized and I taste that same flavor and I don't like it. I don't like the taste of warm milk. I like it really cold. Um, so I think that's where a lot of that comes from um, is okay. having been cooked. I think if you raise your goats, you feed them good food, you keep their area clean, um, you watch them when they're sick and you think they might be sick. You look at your milk. Every, every goat I milk, I squeeze one or two squirts out. And I, I look at it and it goes in a little bowl. And if it looks good, my dogs drink it. <laughs> so they hang around a lot at milking time. <laughs> That's their favorite part of the day. They probably have very shiny coats. Yeah, they, they like it. And then anything left over, um, I pour it on their dry food. Um, the same with the cheese. I, I, they get the whey. Um, when you make cheese, there's a lot of liquid left over, and that's whey because cheese cheese is essentially curds and whey. The whey goes on their food. I give it to my chickens like it. I'll put a bowl out for my chickens. The hogs eat it. I've heard it's good for plants. I I don't know, but um, the universal food. It it is. You know, it's essentially the milk water that you've taken the milk solids out of. So, but back to the goats. I mean, if I think if you are vigilant with your goats you know what they eat you watch them if they might be sick um you pull them from the milking string if they are you're fine you're i i feel very comfortable with with drinking it you know and making stuff with it it's funny though even though the yogurt is cooked it doesn't have that nasty taste and i think that has something to do with the the culture and i mean i might be off base totally but that's just my theory i think once you cook it you you sacrifice a lot of flavor and i can see where people would say it tastes goatee or off or not as good i won't drink goat milk from the store i think it tastes yucky 
Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that one. The worst. If is, I can get it fresh, it's the only time. The powdered is awful. Yeah, that's like powdered milk does not taste good in any incarnation. I should have brought you some cheese today. Bring some next time. I will, I promise. Yeah. Scout's honor. But um, no, with a gallon a day that I freeze it too. I freeze it for the winter. Um, no, is that one gallon from one? No, that's goat, one gallon from, from all eight. Because they're small goats, they don't give a lot of milk. So, okay. but they're easier for me to handle. I've got one. She probably gives um, a quarter of all the milk just from the one goat. <laughs> she's she's a crossbred. She's half Angora and half um, half Nigerian. She's the big girl, the queen bee out there. So, she's my heavy duty milker, and then all the little ones follow in. But, um, You're obviously not doing this because of, for economic gain. Uh, you're doing it because you enjoy growing your own foods. Absolutely, and... I like knowing where my food comes from. You know, right. that that's not to say I don't go buy food at the store. Sometimes, you know, most of the time, a lot of times. But I like um, I like making it from true scratch. You know, it's, I love to cook. I've always liked to cook. So that's a whole different area. I like the whole concept of food preservation. So, Is that something that you bring to the fair also? I do to support it. Um, every year, it's so sad. It just is dwindling and dwindling. When I was maybe a young mom, maybe 20, 25 years ago, the walls would be covered with cookies and jams and pickles. And now there's just a little corner of a building that has it. And it makes me sad. Um, I was at Arizona State Fair and I saw a really nice, um, nice big wall of preserved foods. And I went, yeah, it made me feel really good because around here in, in California, you're not seeing too much of that anymore. Probably people are working. People are working, have, yeah. but people, they just, they're not either not interested or nobody ever taught them, you know. And that comes back to working with 4-H. There's so many things that I wish I had a mentor to teach me when I was younger that... Um, we have so many ways now to find out things. We have YouTube and books and magazines and... You know, for me, a lot of things, I had to go find a mentor where I had to go find, a, like, the Master Food Preserver Program. We don't even have that in Riverside County. I had to go to San Bernardino to learn that, and that was in the early 90s. I, um, I got into that. I had a big garden and no freezer, so I thought I need to figure out what to do with And why did I plant 48 tomato plants? <laughs> because you could. Because they grew, and um, lo and behold, yeah, what am I going to do with all this? So, I it went from a mild interest to about high gear in the early nineties for me, because I don't like waste. I don't like things being wasted or thrown away that can be used, and that's, that's right. So either me. you know making preserves or dehydrating dehydrating or tomato sauce or uh, feeding to the animals in the as a last resort yeah 
Right. So do you have any blue blue ribbons for a, a marmalade or? Oh, I have a lot. Um, I'm not trying to brag, but it's just you accumulate them when you do this for as many years as I did. Um, I have cookbooks. Back in the old days, the Los Angeles County Fair, if you got a first or a second, they asked to publish your recipe, and then they would make a big um, spiral-bound cookbook that you could buy of all the winning recipes from the previous year. They don't do it anymore. But, uh, that was fun. It was fun to be asked to be in the cookbook <laughs> and then get a copy the following year. So I have a few of those. But, um, no, I try as much as I can to participate with that stuff. Um, you know, when I have it, I should have entered Summit India this year. I didn't, and I didn't know I was going to come upon a bounty of peaches and things that time of the winter. I would have. Um, I like to bake too. I like to bake bread. I like to cook. I like to make pizza. There's nothing more fun than making a pizza from scratch um, with your own cheese and your own tomato sauce from your own garden and your own meat from your own hogs. And oh. I did one of those last year. I did everything but grow the wheat for the crust. <laughs> but I did grind the wheat. I ground it in my vitamins. Oh, I goodness. did grind the flour. I just didn't grow it, but that was like really fun. It that must have really, been spectacular. It was a ground up thing, and right. it was um, it was just to say that you can do it, you know. I understand. And I worry about people sometimes. They don't. Um, these skills are all getting lost, you know, or they're not becoming important to anybody, and it's kind of sad. I hear you. It's like you said, you know, you can watch a YouTube video, but it's not the same as standing side by side with someone who's actually showing you how to do it. When I, I spun, there was, learned to spin, there was about 35 years ago, there was one magazine, and it was a quarterly, and there was no YouTube, and there was, there were guilds, and you got a mentor, and you got with like-minded people and they mentored you and you taught them things and that's kind of i mean if i'd have had you can learn these things now in a bubble just on your own from the computer but it was different back back in those days back in the old days <laughs> no i hear you so the um i'm trying to think here the um the fiber that you raise. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, can, I remember a couple years ago at one of the uh, Earth Day fairs, and you were spinning dog hair. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, isn't that fantastic, you know, that even a, a dog uh, could be used for something as practical as that. Um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with that. but You I, know, I the dog hair spinning, It I don't know if it originated in the upper um, northwest British Columbia area, but the Salish tribes um, were the ones that were renowned for spinning dog hair. Um, they're coastal tribes, uh, indigenous and First Nations up in Canada and in Washington and I guess to some extent Oregon. That's where a lot of that that was their primary fiber. It's just like up towards Alaska, they spin a lot of um, kivu, which is muskox. So people spin what they have 
have or had access to. If you have sheep, you spun wool. If you had dogs, you spun dog hair. If you had cotton, you spun cotton. If you had flax, you spun flax. Or, you know, you spun redded flax for linen. That makes sense. So... When are you getting a musk, musk ox? Uh, Is that in your plans? Not anytime soon. Although I read this thing the other day and I saw it on TV about making mozzarella from um, water buffalo milk and I thought um, how that's what they do in Italy yeah uh, mozzarella di buffala and I thought well how neat it would be to have that and then I looked at this other person that lives at my house and I said no (laughs) (laughs) no one more species here and I might as well pack the truck with it Oh, he's very patient. He is very patient, yeah. and, and I can always count on him to take care of things when I'm away. He does everything but milk. So there's a, a few people in my circle that will will milk my goats for the milk. You know, they'll leave him a little bit for the week, but they'll take the milk, and I'm perfectly fine with that because if you don't milk them, they'll. It's a supply and demand thing. The less you milk, the more the less they'll produce. So if you want to keep them milking, you have to milk them, <laughs> oddly enough. Right. So, but no, he's pretty good with everything else and pretty patient. And, you know, for a, sit, uh, for a guy I met who was a city boy, um, <laughs> it was a bit of a shock to his system. <laughs> Hooking I, up I with me. So. Yeah, now that you're le- leading the homesteading life. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, the single mom with horses and sheep in the backyard. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I have to give him, him props. He puts up with a lot. Um, it's good to have a good partner. It sure is. No right. complaints. Well, very few. <laughs> All right. So I think we can wrap it up at this point. Oh, my gosh. I'd love to have you back again. I think there's a lot more that you have to talk about. I'd like to explore more about the fibers and natural dyes. I would appreciate that, and I'd like to do that. That would be kind of fun, dyeing and fiber and spinning and weaving. And, you know, it's something I've been doing for quite a while now, and I just don't think I'll ever get tired of it, like the animals. If I haven't gotten tired of sheep in 50 years, (laughs) um, chances are they're going to be sticking around a little while longer, you know. So that's that. If you have any questions for my guest, send an email to uh, programming at koyt971.org and just put FICA in the subject line and address your question. uh, And we'll answer your question the next time I interview Denise. All right. Thank you for coming in. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of FICA with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put FICA in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.